All right, y'all, this morning we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 26. So these chapters, oh my gosh, I'm worried. These few chapters here in 1 Samuel, they give us this, they tell us about this period of time in David's life where he has been driven from his home by Saul and he is living out in the wilderness with his men. If you remember chapter 24 is where we find the story where David cuts the corner of Saul's robe. Chapter 25 then tells us the story of Nabal and David and Abigail. And today as we look at chapter 26, we're going to find another story from this wilderness period. And we're going to find David in a situation that's going to feel really familiar to something that he has experienced before. And as we work through this text, there's the three things that I want us to consider. Three things I want us to see. The pot that is stirred, the lesson, or really lessons that are learned, and the hope that is held to. We'll read, we'll read all of chapter 26. Let's turn there now. Will you follow along with me as I read? Oh yeah, and by the way, pro tip, if you ever have to read from the Bible and you're like, I don't know how to say that, say it the way you think it's said and say it with confidence and people will be like, I always wondered how that was supposed to be said. Thank you. So if I bush them, you're like, I don't think that's right. I don't care. Here we go. Verse one says there, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. And then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zerah, who will go down with me into the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. And so David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. And so David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. And no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. And then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you? It calls to the king. And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? And why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. 
As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you haven't kept watch over your Lord, who is the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? And what evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men... May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go and serve other gods. Now therefore, not let, my, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I'll no more do harm to you, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all my tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You'll do many great things and will succeed in them. And so David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Church, these are the words of God from the mouth of God, and he's given them to us because he loves us. And these words we read are true. Man, have you ever met someone who like, just always kind of seems to be like stirring trouble up among people? Now, maybe when you talk to them, it doesn't necessarily come off like they're trying to start fights or strife between people. But whenever you talk to them, maybe it seems like they're just always talking about other people. What other people have said, what they've done, places they've gone, people they've hung out with, stuff that they've spent their money on. Maybe, they just, maybe you know somebody that just always seems to be like pointing out what they perceive as shortcomings in other people. Recently, I um, was in a situation where I had to deal with a couple people who, like, this just seemed to be true of them. And most people, whenever they see this happening, whenever they see one person really, like, stirring up strife between others, most people look back and they point out, they're like, man, I hate, I hate when people do that. And, you know, it's not just us as people that hate that. The Bible actually tells us God hates that, too. Proverbs 6 tells us there's six things that the Lord hates. There's seven are an abomination to him. They're haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And then listen to these last ones. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Don't we hate, don't, don't we as people hate that? It's not just us, man. God hates that too. And as we open this chapter and begin to read, this is what we find in the very beginning. First thing, verse 1, opening words. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying. Now look, this is the last time we're going to see these people for the rest of the chapter. And the only thing we see them doing is going to Saul so that they can stir up his anger against David. 
And this isn't the first time they've done it. Back in chapter 23, exact same thing, like almost exact same wording even. Now, this is a people group we don't know a ton about. Don't even actually ultimately know what happens to them. But as we look in Scripture, there are things that we can find. We can find, like, kind of who they are, their origin, where they came from. And we can also see some things about their character. Here's a couple things we see about them. One, they aren't who they profess to be. They profess to be the people of God. They're actually from the line of Judah, which is the same line that David was from. And yet they are not seeking to protect or help David, but instead when we see them, they're actually seeking to destroy him. They're seeking to destroy David, the man who is going to be the next king. We see that they're traitors. They're traitors because they're self-seeking. They're not going to Saul because they have like this great loyalty to the crown or because they care so much for Israel. They're going because, well, they want Saul to do the work for them. They want Saul to purge David from their land. Maybe they're afraid that David will raise up an army because he is a great warrior. Maybe they're afraid that Saul will become angry if they, gave, if they give David safe harbor. We don't, we don't know. But their motivation seems to be very self-seeking. And last, we see that they are more concerned with gaining the favor of the king, favor of men, than they are gaining the favor of God. You ever met somebody like this? Like someone who just... Seems, whoops, seems to only be looking out for themselves. Someone who just meant they just can't be trusted. Someone who's only concerned with winning the favor of people. Maybe even a specific person that they're like really infatuated with for some reason. You know somebody like that. Or does this sometimes describe you? You ever betrayed someone? You ever taken something told in confidence and then told it to somebody else? You know what happens sometimes in Christian circles? We do this, but we kind of try to throw this holiness blanket over it to make it seem okay. Be like, hey, I, I, know, this, I know this thing about a person. I probably shouldn't say anything, but I'm just really concerned about them, so I'm, I'm going to tell you. Or the most prevalent one, Hey, I think we really need to be praying for this person. I'm not supposed to say anything, but we need to pray for them, and so I'm going to tell you. Now look, are those things sometimes true? Eh, probably. But how often do we say those things to make ourselves feel better when in our hearts it's like, I really just want to talk about other people. This was true of these people from Ziph. And do you know what these people needed? And do you know what those of us who find ourselves really identifying with them need? No, we need the gospel. Because the gospel is not, hey, here's five ways to not be a pot-stirring busybody that gossips and talks about people. But instead, the gospel is, hey, you need to submit yourself, all of your life, to the lordship of Jesus being dwelt with his spirit and let him change you from the inside out, give you a new heart and remake your desires. That's what these people needed. And that's what we need as well. These Ziphite people, they were people that would have claimed to be God's people. They would have carried the sign of God's people. And yet they sought their security and their identity apart from him. Christian, you are God's people that carry his sign. But how often do you, like them, seek your identity and your security apart from the God that you claim to serve?
my encouragement to you as an individual is, to, man, as always, be conscious of it. Be asking yourself, where am I seeking this? Where am I really looking for my identity? Where am I looking for my security? And whenever it's not God, man, re- confess it and repent and turn back and throw yourself at the foot of the cross. And when it comes to our lives together, as we are in the church and doing life side by side with one another, let me encourage you, whenever you hear fellow believers speaking in ways that cannot build up and cannot bring peace, but can only serve to tear down and cause conflict, whenever you see someone actively trying to stir up conflict or stir up that like anger and emotion in other people, whenever you see these things taking place, man, don't stand idly by. Step in, take action. Love them. This is not being mean to them. This is loving them. And it's loving the church of God. Man, don't stand by just because you're like, oh, this is going to be awkward and feel weird. Don't participate in it. Don't let it carry on. Instead, and call it what it is. And let's heed the warning that we find in Galatians 5 to be careful that we not bite and devour one another. So as we consider this situation, this relationship now between Saul and David, we see that the anger of Saul has sufficiently been stirred up, and that takes us through point one. So we should probably pick up the pace a little bit and move on to point two and see the lesson, or really the lessons that are learned. So look, I'm about to tell a story about my sister, okay? And it is not one that paints her in a good light, but lest you think I'm putting her on blast without her permission, I called and asked, okay? She knows, all right? Just before y'all are like, you're terrible. That may be true, but not for this reason. So as I got a little bit older, um, I realized, gosh, I realized something that like because of this age difference between my sister and I, as she was going through her teenage years, like I didn't really know her very well because like I lived somewhere else and was working, was out, right? Like I just wasn't around so much. But like your teenage years are formative, right? And lots of change and things goes on. Well, one thing I didn't realize is the way that my sister's um, personality, we'll say, had developed. So I'm at my parents' house one day her and my mom are in an argument about something and like you can just like feel the tension whenever you come in and so I asked my dad I was like dude what is going on and so he's like oh well this thing happened he explains it and uh he's like and it would have been fine if Katie would not have insisted on having the last word it's like oh. it's like is that usually how it goes he's like no that's always how it goes <laughs> and if you've met her you might believe it and so he went on to explain. He's like, look, he's like, for years now, he's like, I've been trying to reinforce this idea to her. It's like, look, you all are going to argue. You don't have to get along all the time. But if you would just, if you would just not insist on having the last word, your mom would not get so mad at you and your life would be easier. But he's like, you know, it's not a lesson she's learned yet. And if you know my dad, like picture it, my dad's goofy voice, like it just, Here's how it is. And so, and I honestly, I don't know if it's a lesson Katie's learned still. I kind of want to call my brother-in-law and be like, bro, do you ever get the last word in an argument? To-do list. But look, it was just a life lesson she hadn't learned yet. 
something she was slow to learn. We, and we all have these things, right? We all have these life lessons that we just seem to be slow to learn. You know, as we look at the book of 1 Samuel and look at the life of Saul, it seems like there are a handful of lessons that Saul was very slow to learn. It seems like Saul was really slow to learn, like, look, David is not against you. He is not actively trying to take your throne. He also seemed to be slow to learn that these people from the land of Ziph, like, they don't, like, deeply love Saul. It's like, no, man, they really just want him to do the dirty work for them. And Saul seemed to be really slow to learn, like, look, David is God's appointed man. He's going to be the next king, and God is going to preserve him. So Saul may not have learned from his previous life, life experience, but here it seems like David has learned from his. So what happened after the, those people came and stirred up Saul's anger? He gathers 3,000 men and sets out again to pursue David. David hears of it. He sends spies. He then goes to look for himself. And as he looks down into the camp, he sees Saul in the middle of these 3,000 men next to the commander of his army, like what should have been the safest place for him to be. He turns to the two men beside him and says, who will go down into the camp with me? And Abishai, who's actually David's nephew, he volunteers and says that he will go. So that night, what does it say they do? They sneak in, they go to the place where Saul is, right next to the commander of his army. And David actually finds himself in a position he's been in before. He finds himself in a position where he can actually do whatever he wants to Saul. But here's the difference. See, back in chapter 24, like, he's hiding in this cave, and Saul just kind of wanders in, not knowing that he's in there. Like, it's total chance, right? Believe in sovereignty and providence and all those things, but it's chance, right? Like, David hasn't planned for this thing to happen. But the difference this time is David has made a plan and executed it to put him in a position to where he could do whatever he wants to the king. And he is once again faced with this question. All right, David, here you are. Now what are you going to do? In the cave, his men had urged him, take his life from him. And now as they stand there over the sleeping body of Saul, his nephew is saying, take his life from him. But I'll do you a solid. I won't make you do it. I'll do it for you. He says, let me take Saul's own spear and pin him to the ground with it. You know that spear of Saul? David has history with that thing, too. The Bible tells us on more than one occasion, Saul has taken that spear and tried to pin David to the wall with it. He's tried to kill David with that spear. And now David stands here, the opportunity to take that spear and end Saul and end his troubles. And David in that moment could have decided something. He could have decided for himself, Saul's never going to learn that I am not against him. He could have decided, if I want this pursuit to end, the only way to do it is to end Saul's life. He could have decided that this situation was solely on him. It was solely up to him. It was all in his hands. It's not what he did. Instead, we see David holding to the exact same position that he had previously. I cannot stretch out my hand against God's anointed king. So if David's holding to the same position he has before, why then can I say that David has learned something? It's because the end of verse 9. Do you remember in the last chapter, 
David is angry and he's on the war path to go to the, ho- to the household of Nabal and he is going to annihilate him and his entire household. Remember this story, right? Yeah, head's nodding, sure. Okay, and then Abigail intervenes, right? Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes and intervenes and she makes this plea and one of the things she expresses in it is, David, you do not want to have blood guilt. Meaning like you don't want to have the weight of this and this guilt on your conscience because you killed someone in anger. In chapter 24, when David could have killed Saul, he doesn't say anything about the guilt he would feel. But now, he says, yeah, we don't want to have the guilt on us for having killed the king. See here, David has learned something. He has taken a truth that he has been taught in life, and he has let it take root within him and produce fruit. I mean, is that something that you, is that something you do? Is that something that you consciously do? Like, do you let lessons that you learn intellectually take root and produce fruit in your life? Look, man, I confess to you, this is something that I struggle in. Like, take, take my sin, for instance. I will feel the effects of my sin. I will see the consequences play out. And yet in time, I will run back and do the exact same thing. And why is that? It's because there's this seed of truth that was planted in me through my experiences. But it's planted and then I kind of let it go unattended, unwatered, we might say. And so it doesn't take root. You find that to be true of you. Like, does your life seem to be a rerun of like the same mistakes, the same sins, the same failings? And do you find that you, just like me, fail to let lessons you learn really take root? that you fail to water and to nurture those truths, that you fail to work them out and put them into practice. Man, David has, David to his credit in this situation, he has taken this truth that he has learned about this feeling of guilt and sin, and he has let it take root and shape him. But that's not the only lesson he learned. He also took the lesson that, you know what, God will avenge his people and that he doesn't have to do it for himself. Look at verse 10. What does it say? He's talking about Saul. And David says, you know what? God will strike Saul down. Or Saul will die of natural causes. Or he'll go into battle and he'll die. What is David really saying as he offers up like all these different ways Saul's life might end? He's saying, look, God will handle this Saul situation for me, but it's not up to me. I think maybe he learned this from his previous experience where God judged Nabal and struck him dead for him. Look, David, David's like us in a lot of ways. He hasn't figured everything out. He hasn't learned these specific lessons even to the point where he'll never commit them again. But in this specific situation, we see that David has reflected on the ways God has worked and it has deepened his trust in God. Christian, is that true of you? Do you trust God to, more today than you did last year? Are you actively reflecting on the ways that he has been at work? You know, this reflecting thing, it's work. It is work, and it's something we have to consciously do. But you know what happens if we fail to reflect on the way God has worked? You either are oblivious to it, or you forget it. And then, whenever we forget, we get short-sighted. And we think, well, God hasn't done anything for me lately. We have to consciously be reflecting on the ways that God has worked.
You know, David's men seem to have suffered from what many of us do. We get short-sighted. We forget to reflect in the work God has done. And so because of that, as David and his nephew stand there over Saul, his nephew wants to execute the king, and David has to reach out his hand and tell him no. He said, we're not going to do this. We're not going to put out our hand against God's anointed. Even though it might make sense in the moment, this is not our place that God has given us. So what do they do? Instead, David says, take the spear and the jar of water that is head and let's go. This would be equivalent to like somebody breaking into your house and stealing your pistol and your water bottle off your nightstand. Okay? Like it's kind of the idea, right? Like, and so they sneak in through these thousands of men and then sneak back out, put distance in between them. And David then begins to call out to the camp. He calls to Abner, the leader of Saul's army. And then, even though it's kind of hard to pick up on in our English translation, he actually then begins to address all of the army. And you know what he says? You all deserve to be put to the sword. You all deserve to be executed. And why is that? Because you have failed to protect the king that God has placed on the throne. And as Saul hears David's voice, he's like, oh, I know that guy. He says, is that your voice, my son David? And as David and Saul then begin to have this exchange, we see yet another way that David has matured over the course of these last couple chapters. Because you know what he says? He's like, hey, if there is sin in my life, like Saul, if you are coming after me, and if I have attributed to this in some way, if there's a sin in my life that has brought this on me, if there's something that I'm not aware of, a sin that I am blind to, dude, tell me. He says, tell me so that I might make sacrifice for it. What David is really saying like in our language is, tell me so that I can repent of that. It's maturing. It's realizing, hey, there might be something that I have done that I don't even know about. But Saul, tell me. But if that's not the case, and if someone has stirred up your anger against me, then may those who did it be cursed before God. That's terrifying. And Saul, just as he has before, in that moment acknowledges, like, no, David, it's not you that has sinned. David, it's me that has sinned. Like our confession talks about, no, I have repaid. I repaid you with evil. Our confession said, do you repay evil for evil? David hadn't done him evil. Saul instead was repaying good. David had done good to him, and Saul was returning evil upon him. So, Saul says, David, I'm going to stop pursuing you. I'm going to go home. You can be in peace. David returns Saul's things to him. The two go their ways. And you know what? This is their last exchange. It's the last time these two would ever see one another. And what we see in this story is that David has not only learned lessons from his experiences, he has not only let them take root, he has not only matured through his life experience, what we might say, and sanctified. He has not only grown but he has also let his hope become more firmly fixed and anchored in God. You know, if we were to go and ask random people on the streets, you guys, are, you guys remember jaywalking in, uh, from Leno? We'd go around and ask people random questions. If we were to go and do that on the streets of America and ask people, hey, what do you think your hope is ultimately fixed in? We would get an array of answers, I'm sure. Probably some basic things like family, money, maybe technology, maybe personal intelligence. Maybe because this is America, we might get some people who would say, like, my citizenship of this country. 
I would hope not, but we probably would. But if we were to go and ask Christians, hey, what is your hope ultimately fixed in? I think, or I'd hope, that everyone would say, my hope's fixed in God. Christian, is that true? Intellectually, I have no doubt that it is. But would our life bear that out and say the same thing? That our hope is ultimately anchored and fixed in our God? Or would our words and actions say that our hope is placed in other things? I mean, like, we look at Saul, and we see that his hope was fixed in his military might and his armory and the love of people. Where's yours? As David and Saul exchange their final words in verse 24, look at what it says. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may He deliver me out of all tribulation. As David speaks here, he does not say, Saul, your life was precious to me. Do me a solid and treat me that way. Let my life be precious to you. But instead he says, Saul, just like your life was precious to me, may my life be precious, not to you, but to God. He asked that God would deliver him because David knew this is ultimately the only place I can find hope. The Bible tells us that during this time, this time period for David, it's where he penned the words that we find in Psalm 54. And listen to what it says. He says, Oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me. Ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set God before themselves. But listen then to how he ends. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them all. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I'll give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Friends, David hope, David's hope was found not in Saul, not in his might, not in anything else except for the everlasting, steadfast, just, and loving God that we worship today. And that God, he has loved us with an everlasting love, and it's seen nowhere more clearly than at the cross. And because of the finished work of Jesus... You and I can actually join together and say the words of Psalm 54 along with David. But friends, we can say them with even more clarity than David himself could. Because we can see even more clearly that indeed God is our helper. That God has returned evil to our greatest enemy and triumphed over him. That he in his faithfulness has conquered sin and death. And that one day because of Christ's victory, you and I will get to live on the new heavens and the new earth where sin will be no more. Friends, our God is faithful, and our God has triumphed over our greatest enemy. So as we close, let me encourage you with this. Let me urge you. When God gives us every experience in our life for a reason, and He tells us that He works them all together for our good. So let those experiences that God gives you, let them be tools to learn and to mold and to form and shape us. And let us learn from the saints that have gone before. The saints like David. The saints that we find in Scripture. And the saints that you're sitting in chairs next to right now. If you're a believer, you're a saint. Let's learn from those that God has put in our lives. Let's do life together 
Let's observe the way that God is working in their lives as well as the way he is working in ours. And friends, let us hold fast and seek our anchors deeper and deeper into the hope that is ours in Christ alone. Let's pray as we close. God, we love you. Uh, We thank you for the story. We thank you that um, you don't just give us like a story from the life of David, but that you give us many, that you get to see the way that we get to see the way that you changed him, the way that he grew, the way that you made him more into your image. God, we thank you that you have recorded his failings so that we might never hold him up as the ultimate example. Thank you that even in the Old Testament, you are, you are pointing us to the Redeemer who is to come, and we thank you that we get to live on this side of the cross and see the beauty of our Savior Jesus. Pray that we might find our identity and our hope in Him. Pray that you would give us courage to call sin what it is, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others. And you would give us wisdom to know how to do that in a way that is loving and that builds them up. Let us learn, let us learn from the life situation, the situations that you put in our lives, and let us every day be sinking our hope deeper and deeper into you, because that is the only place that true, unshakable, unchangeable hope can be found. And we bring this now before the throne in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.